And today we are in Luke chapter 9, from verse 7 down to verse 17. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says, beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him, that is Jesus. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of, of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples who sat before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Amen. Let's come to God in prayer. O Lord, our desire now, as we have turned to your word, is that you, we would eat of the true food of your word, that you would show us Christ and that we would be satisfied in him. We ask for your Spirit's help and ministry to us, that you would stir in our hearts inclinations to your testimonies and open our eyes to behold the wonder and beauty of our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. This morning we come to one of the most vivid and memorable miracles of Jesus. The supernatural feeding of the 5,000 men. And that number doesn't even include women and children. So there were more than 5,000 people total. Now our text begins with this brief paragraph in verses 7 through 9 about King Herod. But we'll return to this just a little bit later and see how it fits in with the flow of the narrative and the context of this miracle. But in any case... This account of the feeding of 5,000 has been a treasure to God's people for all of church history. And as we walk through the Gospel of Luke, we have already and we will continue to come across certain passages like this one that are just so iconic and so famous. And in my study, I find myself asking every time, what is it about this passage that we love so much? What about the feeding of the 5,000 is so precious to us? And what I find is that the answer almost every time is because passages like this one are such simple yet vivid pictures that show us what is so wonderful about God and remind us of the joy and the blessing of knowing Him rather than the burden of knowing Him. Because here, this miracle is simply the most childlike object lesson to teach us that Jesus 
is sufficient for us in all of life. And that Christ is the giver of all blessing and satisfaction. He is the giver. That is to say, Jesus is not just some heavy-handed, domineering king who demands that we bring him food and we feed him grapes as he's on our recliner and we fan him with those palm leaves or whatever they use. It's not that we must satisfy him at the cost of our satisfaction and happiness. But first and foremost, Christ has come to feed us, to give all of himself to us. And this is the very premise of the gospel, isn't it? That God is infinitely sufficient in and of himself. He needs nothing from us. But rather, he calls us to himself through his son, that he might give himself to us for our highest blessing and satisfaction in him. And only when we understand this, then do we actually worship him and honor him truly with hearts of praise and thanksgiving because we find all of our joy in his presence and nowhere else. Now, this miracle takes place after the 12 apostles come back from their little field test mission that we saw last week of preaching the gospel throughout the villages and performing signs and wonders with the power and authority that Jesus conferred on them. And so we are told in verse 10 that they return from their evangelistic journeys and report to Jesus all that they had done by his empowerment. And I imagine, I imagine that they were very excited to tell Jesus about everything. But at the same time, they were also exhausted. It wasn't an easy journey. And so Jesus took them and withdrew from the crowds to a remote area near a town called Bethsaida for the purpose of giving them rest. Now, it wasn't in the town, but it was the general vicinity of that town. Uh, But again, they didn't stay in the town, the actual uh, place, because as verse 20, or rather verse 12 indicates, they went to a desolate place out in the boonies, just in that vicinity. And Mark's account tells us that again, Jesus took them there for the distinct purpose of much needed rest after the laborious demands of gospel ministry. But in verse 11, the crowds They find out that Jesus and the twelve are going out there in the countryside near Bethsaida. And so thousands of them follow him and his disciples all the way out there. And yet, notice how Jesus reacted to the massive crowd that was effectively interrupting their plans for a nice little retreat. It says in verse 11, Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Upon seeing the crowds, although Jesus himself was no doubt weary and worn out, given the very nature of his true humanity, he went right back to doing the very things that he and his disciples had tirelessly been laboring in. You see, even before the miracle is even performed, we already see in the mere backdrop of this account that Jesus is so willing and ready to give all of himself to meet the needs of Of needy people. He is the only one who never says no to anyone who comes to him in need, anytime or anywhere. He is never bothered by our requests, our cries, our incessant pining. If anything, the only bothersome thing is that we do not go to him enough. We do not ask of him enough. We try to figure things out on our own. But let this show us that we can always go to Christ. And he is always so ready to give the best of himself 
to those who seek Him. And this is what the miracle itself reveals to us at the most basic level, that in Christ, there is always an overflowing abundance of blessing. Jesus gives the best of Himself, not just meager portions. Because notice the circumstance that brought about this miraculous feeding. The crowds had followed Jesus and disciples all the way to the desolate boonies, and so they were far removed from the actual towns. There's no 7-Eleven, no McDonald's, no Safeway. I don't know why I keep mentioning 7-Eleven and McDonald's on the pulpit. I don't even frequent those places. Some of you are judging me, thinking I'm very unhealthy. I, I, I really don't go there. But in any case, the point being, there was no place of food or, or groceries or anything to be found. It was a barren place with, with no residence. And after the whole day had gone by of teaching and, and ministering to them, well, it was getting late. And no doubt the thousands who had congregated there were hungry and they were weak and famished. And so realizing the situation, the 12 disciples uh, come to Jesus and they say, well, why don't you disperse the crowd so that they can make it back in time, at least before they fall over, uh, so that they can journey back to the nearby towns and villages for some food and lodging. Because look, they're, they're really fatigued and we don't want anyone uh, fainting from starvation. And to be fair, that's a thoughtful and reasonable consideration on the part of the twelve. And so in response, Jesus says in verse 13, Okay then, why don't you guys give them something to eat? Now this was obviously a shocking thing to hear because, I mean, as verse 14 says, there were about 5,000 men and probably more women and children. And so how in the world are 12 disciples going to feed thousands of men? In fact, in the parallel accounts in the other gospel writers, it is recorded them saying, even if we had 200 denarii of bread, it wouldn't be enough for everyone to get a nibble. 200 days worth of wages. That amount of bread, it would be insufficient. You could feel the disciples frantically wondering how this is humanly possible. Now, why would Jesus tell them to feed the crowds when it was clearly impossible? Well, that's the point. Jesus was underscoring human inability to provide for self. It was to point out human weakness and insufficiency. I mean, if you think about it, you and I, we're conditioned to feel a semblance and an illusion of self-sufficiency, but only when the circumstances permit. You know, we feel strong and capable so long as we find ourselves in favorable situations where everything is going just as planned. And so we feel like we have control. We feel like we are self-sufficient. But as soon as those circumstances change, whoa, I mean, don't we feel very inadequate and utterly helpless to even meet our own needs, let alone the needs of others? But isn't this the basic experience of life where where we go through situations in which our weakness and frailty is brought to the forefront? Beloved, God is the one who brings those circumstances to us to help us realize that we can't provide for ourselves. We never really could. And that we were never meant to. And it's also that we would look to Him for the provision that only He can give. 
And that's why Jesus directed the disciples in such a way to make them feel their insufficiency so that they might be driven to ask Jesus, Lord, we can't. So could you do something about this? Could you be the one to give what only you can give? And so after scrambling about and and after being at their wit's end, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, this is all we have. Just five loaves and two fish. And then Jesus takes over. And he tells them to organize the thousands into groups of 50. It's like setting up tables for a church picnic. And verse 16, taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And everybody ate. Now this is nothing but the most spectacular display of Jesus' glory as God incarnate, as the creator who has come down to be with his creatures. Because look, it's, it was one thing, amazing already in itself, but it was one thing to alter the elemental properties of water into wine. Again, that's a whole subject of divine power in and of itself. Incredible, miraculous, supernatural, divine. But here, Jesus was creating matter Then and there. As one writer puts it, material creation flowed from his hands just as the universe itself had. It was, as it were, let there be bread. And there was bread. And there was bread again. And there was bread again. I mean, if I were to 12, I'd be like, how do you do that? One more time. Slow down, slow down. But over and over and over again, Bread was created. And there's no other explanation but that he is God and human flesh. And that with his infinite power as creator and sovereign ruler of the universe, what did Jesus do with that power? He fed those who were hungry. This is who God is. Gracious, generous. He comes to us in our weakness and famished state to nurture us and to give to us. And notice especially in verse 17, it says that they all ate, not just some, but they all ate and they were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. That is to say, even enough for each of the twelve who are busy serving the food to all the groups. Jesus takes care of even his laborers. And the point is this, that when God provides, he gives an overabundance of his blessing. He is generous. They were not fed with just scraps. The crowd weren't, weren't even fed to a moderate degree of being satiated, just enough to get by until they could get back to the towns. Rather, they were stuffed. And there was so much left over. Such is the sheer generosity and abundance of God's provision for his people. Always. Now, church, let me ask you this. Do you believe that in Christ, you are today, with all the current state of affairs of your life, with all that's going on, with all of your anxieties and concerns, all the good things and all the bad things, do you believe that in Christ today, you have been blessed by God so lovingly and so lavishly beyond your comprehension and beyond measure. 
Do you know that and do you believe that? And I don't mean this in just some cute theoretical Christian way, but I mean that every one of God's people, everyone who is following Jesus by faith, is yesterday, today, and every day in a place where Christ has not withheld anything good from them. Instead, He has lavished ample provision for each of them with joy in the, in the loving heart of the Father. Such that there is nothing that any one of us in Christ lack. And that if there were a better situation for us to be in, that was more conducive to our well-being, that God would have put us there instead. And the struggle for us is to believe that this is indeed true. Isn't it? Because so often it doesn't seem like it. Life is harder than I would like. There are certain circumstances that I wish would be different. I mean, isn't this how we think? We, wishing that we had more. Wishing that we had something better. Wishing that we had something easier. And I'm not even necessarily saying that we, we always do that in a complaining way, but we do that in a genuine way of wishing that things were easier and less burdensome. And in these thoughts, we begin to wonder if God cares about us. That if he notices our struggles, our feelings of weakness, or uncertainty of how provision will be met. But let this miracle remind us of how generous and abundant is Christ and his provision for those he loves. He gives the very best of himself, providing lavishly, even in excess, even when we don't feel like it is true. But the Lord knows your full situation, with all of your needs and wants and worries. In fact, He is the one who put you in that situation on purpose. Because look at what is portrayed here in this passage. Namely, that it was divine providence that led the crowds to follow Jesus into the desolate place where there was no food to be found and foraged for themselves. You know, it's actually kind of funny When you read the other Gospels in parallel, and actually this is one of the very, very few miracles that are recorded by all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But when you read all the Gospel writers and read their parallel accounts, it's funny how much they emphasize this little detail. Uh, Again, if you read Matthew, Mark, and especially Luke side by side and stitch together all the sentences, you'd end up reading something like this. Jesus said to the disciples, come, let's go to a desolate place. And so Jesus withdrew to a desolate place with them. And then the disciples said, hey, we're in a desolate place. We need to give them something to eat. Desolate place, desolate place. It's one of those words where you keep saying it, it sounds a little funny. But why is the location so important to the gospel writers? It's because it's meant to ring an Old Testament bell in our minds. You see, the desolate place is another way of saying the wilderness. It's the same word. It could be literally translated, we're in a place of wilderness. Does that sound familiar? Remember after leaving Egypt? Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They followed God into the wilderness, just as the crowds followed God incarnate into the place of wilderness by Bethsaida. And remember, Israel got hungry. They were in need. They couldn't find food for themselves. So what did God do? He gave them bread. Manna from heaven. 
And all of this was to teach them this very important lesson, which is reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. And God said, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. And he humbled you and he let you hunger. He let you hunger and fed you with manna that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but that man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, by leading Israel to the wilderness, God was teaching them to not rely on themselves, but he stripped them of all their self-sufficiency so that they might learn to seek God's provision and trust God's promises which he spoke to them constantly, that he would never leave them nor forsake them. It's hard for us to trust that when life gets hard, doesn't it? Rather than grumbling to, to look to him for help and provision, and he will supply plentifully because he loves his people whom he has redeemed, as God said many times. And on and on, every one of these words that came from the mouth of the Lord, Israel was being reminded to trust God as God, and that he would never fail to be faithful. You see, the wilderness was a blessing from God to teach his people to find their sufficiency in him who is the only true sufficiency, and to experience the joy of his supernatural provision. I mean, even in our lives as believers, it is some of the greatest joys when we see answered prayers. When we see God come through, when we thought there was no way. And it's not ultimately because we're so happy about the outcome, but it's because in those moments, we feel so loved by God. We feel so cared by God. We feel so assured of His abiding presence in us. That's what the wilderness does. And so Jesus led those crowds on that day, letting them hunger so that they might receive the food that only He can give. And again, in the same way, Jesus leads us many times into the wilderness to reveal his extraordinary sufficiency. And even in the wilderness to show that there is ample satisfaction to be experienced in him alone. You know, we're so tempted to do everything in our power to ever avoid having to go into the wilderness. Right? That's how we like to construct our lives. Plan everything out. And I'm all for planning. It's a good thing. There is a wisdom principle and a stewardship that's there. But oftentimes, our hearts are fleshly and that we do it in order to seize control. Because we don't like being in need. But look here. On this day, how abundantly satisfied the crowds were, even in the wilderness. And this teaches us that there is more joy and blessing to be had in the wilderness of life with Christ than for us to be in the comforts of a metropolis with many resources without Christ. Because Christ and his loving provision is our only true sufficiency. And to prove this point further, we are given some very specific descriptions about this day which can be found in the other gospel accounts. Turn with me to the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6 is a parallel account of Luke chapter 9. And the record of Jesus feeding the 5,000 begins in verse 30 in Mark chapter 6. But I want to direct your attention just to a couple 
extra details that Mark notes for us, which Luke doesn't. And one is in verse 34. That it says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And so Mark records for us an expression of Jesus's heart of, of love and care for the crowds in this wonderful metaphor of him seeing them as sheep without a shepherd by implication, Jesus himself being the shepherd. And verse 39 is the other detail. It says, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now that's kind of funny, isn't it? Green grass, it's kind of really blaring at you. It's very in your face. I mean, grass is green, I know that. Actually, I guess sometimes it gets yellow if you don't water it enough, but nevertheless, green grass. And in fact, John's account is even more conspicuous because he says in John chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. And so everyone sat down. I mean, you you see what the writers are doing. Hink, hint, hint, wink, wink. There was grass. Remember, there was grass here. What's the big deal? Uh, Again, does anything here ring an Old Testament bell? Jesus with the shepherd's heart? People sitting down on green grass? Oh, it sure does. Mark and John are laboring to show us a beautiful picture of Jesus as the living fulfillment of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Even though the crowds are in the wilderness, what comes to the forefront of this picture is Jesus as our good shepherd, whose presence is so all-sufficient that there is abundant blessing to be found in him even in the wilderness. That is to say, even the wilderness of life is like green pastures, so long as Jesus is our shepherd, and so long as we're following him and he is with us. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. The dim uncertainty of the obscure future, the dark clouds, of all our worries and burdens, our pains, through every veil of shadows, we don't need to fear because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And isn't it so appropriate that the psalm ends with the picture of of the Lord's lavish generosity? Remember how Psalm 23 ends? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Jesus kept that promise and fulfilled the psalm. As he overflowed every plate with more than enough food to satisfy thousands. And he intends to keep that same promise with us as we follow him with our lives. Church, God doesn't promise you the circumstances that you would forge for yourself. But he promises that he is with you always, whatever your circumstances. And that his grace is sufficient for you in all of your weaknesses, all of your feeling of helplessness, and all of your struggles. And this incredible miracle that Jesus did not only assures us of his provision for all our earthly needs while we are still walking this life on earth, 
but it ultimately points us to the eternal hope and promise which is found in Him alone. In other words, the purpose of this miracle is not to just keep our eyes down on the things of earth and all of our earthly concerns, but ultimately to lift our eyes up beyond the needs and desires of this temporal world. And to fail to do so would be to miss the grand point of this wondrous miracle. Because you see, the feeding of the 5,000 was a sign. Now if you read John's Gospel, just throughout the whole Gospel, you'll notice that John never uses the word miracle to refer to Jesus' miracles. But his choice word is to call them signs. Hence, if you look in John chapter 2, verse 11, you all know that the water into wine, him, him uh, transforming the water into wine was his first miracle. But how does John describe it? He calls it that this was the first of his signs in which he manifested his glory. And again, in John chapter 6, in the account of feeding the 5,000, he refers to this miraculous feeding as the people saw the sign that was done. Now, why is John so fixated on this word? It's because he's emphasizing that these signs and wonders were never meant to terminate in themselves, but they were always pictures pointing to the greater and ultimate reality. Now, maybe we would benefit from calling it like a signpost. If you're driving down to L.A., you see as soon as you get on the 5 South, after you pass Tracy, you see Los Angeles, 300 miles or something like that. Now, if you just look at the sign, you go, oh, that's interesting. Let's set up shop over here and pitch out our tents. Well, that would be kind of silly. You never got to Los Angeles. That was just a sign. Go where the sign points you to. And so if you don't follow where the sign directs, then you've missed the whole point and it's all meaningless in the end and so here the question is what is the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 pointing to what is the destination that it is meant to drive us toward to where must it take us and direct our ultimate attention it's to the realization that Jesus is everything That all of our needs, all of our desires, all of our joys, all of our satisfactions are found not just in what he gives, but found in him, in the giver himself. I mean, think about it. Imagine you were there at the wilderness as Jesus took five loaves and two fish and he fed the 5,000. How foolish it would be to be merely fixated on the food. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, it it was important. There was a real need of hunger that Jesus so lovingly supplied with that food. But how senseless it would be for the big takeaway to be, cool, I was once hungry and now I am not. Amazing bread, how can it be? And I'm happy now. Say, this Jesus is quite good at feeding thousands. You know, I could save some money, especially with the rising food costs. Can I come back for lunch tomorrow? If that is your big takeaway, after seeing Jesus do what he just did, you're blind. That is flat out carnal and dull in spirit. Because anyone there who witnessed this miracle should have said, Hold up, hold up, hold up. I'm grateful for the food. 
Thank you, Jesus. But who is this in whom there is an endless supply of nourishment and blessing and satisfaction? Who in the world is this who, even if I am in the wilderness, deprived of all earthly resources, is proving himself to be more than sufficient for all of my needs and desires? Thank you for the bread. But I want to know, who is this heavenly bread giver? Because it would appear that if I have him, if I am always with him, then I have everything. You see, the true bread that we all need is not the earthly bread that Jesus gives, but the true bread is the presence of the bread giver because he is the bread of life. This is what the sign was pointing to. That we would see how knowing Jesus, being with Jesus, loving Jesus, following Jesus, trusting Jesus, is our highest satisfaction and joy. But sadly, John chapter 6 tells us that many people that day missed the sign. Because the next day, the crowd sought after Jesus. Why? Because they were looking for some lunch. In their carnal spiritual blindness, they just wanted some food and that was it. And so Jesus tells them in John chapter 6 verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs and that you're not following the sign to where it's pointing, but you are seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. You see, what this tells us is that you can seek after Jesus, but do it all for the wrong reasons. Because you end up missing the whole point of it all. You miss the sign and you never get to the real Jesus because all you're looking for is what you get from Jesus and not Jesus himself. And I think that's the reason for this little blurb about Herod that's inserted in verses 7 to 9 back in Luke chapter 9. Because Herod was such an individual who enthusiastically even sought after Jesus, but was utterly spiritually blind. Having, well, first of all, murdered John the Baptist, he was sitting around his home when all of a sudden the reports started coming in about how Jesus and his 12 disciples were doing all kinds of powerful signs and wonders. And it says in verse 7 that he was perplexed because some said John was raised from the dead, others said it was Elijah, or some said it was some other prophet from the Old Testament. And this bewilderment actually came from his paranoia and his guilty conscience because, well, he had beheaded John the Baptist and I guess he was worried that John the Baptist was now risen from the dead as a headless zombie coming for vengeance but in case notice in verse 9 Herod says to himself hmm who is this about whom I hear such things now that's the right question isn't it that's the question we're meant to ask even the disciples on the boat said who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. Herod asked the right question, and it even says in verse 9 that he sought to see Jesus. Herod was a seeker. He was seeking after Jesus. But all for the wrong reasons. Because as Luke will later tell us in chapter 23, verse 8, when Jesus finally stood before Herod and Pontius Pilate before his crucifixion, It says that when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad 
For he had long desired to see him. Wow, sounds really good, huh? But why? Because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod sought out for Jesus for just the sign and never for what the signs were pointing to. He was fascinated by the entertainment value of what Jesus could do. He was intrigued by the prospect of Jesus being a nice addition to his personal enjoyment of spectacular performances, which I'm sure he had many of. But Herod was blind because he missed the sign. His heart never went to where the sign pointed, which is to Christ himself as the glorious, all-sufficient treasure and the one true king, not King Herod, but the true king of heaven who came down to save sinners. You see, church, we must be honest in asking ourselves daily, what is it that we seek in Jesus? Is it ultimately the things that we get from him? Or is it him? To know and to worship him. To grow in trusting that Jesus is really better than anything this world can offer. It's a growing process to continue to believe that more and more, but that's the joy and journey of the Christian life. Or are we seeking Him to seek His good and perfect will for our lives, even if it means willingly following Him into the desert or wilderness, so long as He is with us? And then to follow Him ultimately through the gates of eternity, where we will be with Him forever, and worship Him in perfect purity as our highest joy and fulfillment. This is what the signs were pointing to. Jesus therefore said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There are some of you this morning who have yet to come truly to this bread of life. Now maybe you've been in the church your whole life and you're happy to be in Jesus' vicinity inside the doors of his congregation so long as you just get the temporal bread that merely feeds your fleshly desires. Just whatever you want in this life and this life only. And in this, you have been blind. Just like Herod, just like the crowds, you've been blind to seeing the truth of Jesus, how he himself is the eternal, imperishable food that you need. And if this is you, Jesus tells you, do not live for the food that perishes. How vain that is. What a waste. How tragic that would be. There is so much more to life than just eating and drinking and and wandering aimlessly and doing what everybody else does and living life how everybody else tells you to live until you finally hit the grave. Look, you're not just a big clump of cells whose sole purpose is to stay alive with mere food and drink and just follow your fleshly instincts throughout your years on earth seeking after only temporal gratification. That's a very naturalistic way of thinking where you're essentially just another animal. It's no different than how the beasts of the field live just by their fleshly instincts of eating and drinking and rinse and repeat each and every day. No, You are created in the image of God. You are meant to know Him, to to delight in Him, to be loved by Him, and to love Him in response, to reflect His glory with your life. And that is your highest 
happiness. No matter what the world tells you. No matter what Instagram or TikTok tells you. Whatever is trendy today. And you can have this true happiness of the soul in Jesus alone. Who is the bread of life. Come down from heaven. And he came not just to bring physical bread to us. But he came to give himself. His body, the bread broken for us. His blood poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins which He accomplished by His death on a cross so that we might be reconciled to God, adopted as His children and live to obey His loving will for us. Come to Jesus by faith if you have not already and receive the eternal food He gives in Himself. And listen, if you see yourself as a weak and pitiful and unworthy sinner, You are the perfect candidate to receive Christ because as we see in this miracle, Jesus does not feed the strong and self-sufficient, but he has come to feed the weak, the powerless, and the helpless. And this miraculous feeding is a sign of the gospel. It is not a reward for the strong, but it is salvation for the weak and the famished, all of us. And church, as we close, let this remind all of us of the sheer grace of our Lord Jesus, that He really is the all-sufficient Lord, the giver of life, and the generous giver of every blessing. And God does not call us first to be something or to become something outside of Him in order for us to be worthy of receiving His love. But God calls us to find it all in Christ, freely and joyfully, as His greatest gift to us, which is Himself, His own presence and His love. And may this reminder drive us to live each day seeking our utmost satisfaction and comfort in the continual presence of Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank You for revealing to us through Your Word and for revealing to us through Your work on that day of your heart and love for sinners. And that even in this, you are the fulfillment of Isaiah 55. Come and buy without any money food that our souls that are destitute and hungry, ridden with sin, might be nourished, fed, strengthened, and replenished by your grace. Thank you for the joy and the good news that is the gospel. Indeed, would you strengthen us by the very spiritual food that is the gospel each and every day as we seek to follow you with our lives. We ask this in your most wonderful name. Amen.